Section number 17 of The Platner Story and Others. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by the Second. The Platner Story and Others by H.G. Wells. A Slip Under the Microscope. Outside the laboratory windows was a watery gray fog, and within a close warmth and the yellow light of the green-shaded gas lamps that stood two to each table down its narrow length. On each table stood a couple of glass jars containing the mangled vestiges of the crayfish, mussels, frogs, and guinea pigs upon which the students had been working. And down the side of the room, facing the windows, were shelves bearing bleached dissections and spirits, surmounted by a row of beautifully executed anatomical drawings in whitewood frames and overhanging a row of cubicle lockers. All of the doors of the laboratory were paneled in blackboard, and on these were half-erased diagrams of the previous day's work. The laboratory was empty, save for the demonstrator, who sat near the preparation room door, and silent, save for the low, continuous murmur, and the clicking of the rocker microtome at which he was working. But scattered about the room were traces of numerous students, handbags, polished boxes of instruments, and in one place a large drawing covered by newspaper, and in another a prettily bound copy of News from Nowhere, a book oddly at variance with its surroundings. These things had been put down hastily as the students had arrived and hurried at once to secure their seats in the adjacent lecture theater. Deadened by the closed door, the measured accents of the professor sounded as a featureless muttering. Presently, faint through the closed windows, came the sound of the oratory clock striking the hour of eleven. The clicking of the microtome ceased, and the demonstrator looked at his watch, rose, thrust his hands into his pockets, and walked slowly down the laboratory towards the lecture theater door. He stood listening for a moment, then his eye fell on the little volume by William Morris. He picked it up, glanced at the title, smiled, opened it, looked at the name on the flyleaf, ran the leaf through with his hand, and put it down. Almost immediately the even murmur of the lecturer ceased, and there was a sudden burst of pencils rattling on the desk in the lecture theater, a stirring, scraping of feet, and a number of voices speaking together. Then a firm footfall approached the door which began to open and stood ajar, as some indistinctly heard question arrested the newcomer. The demonstrator turned, walked slowly past the microtome, and left the laboratory by the preparation room door. As he did so, first one and then several students carrying notebooks entered the laboratory from the lecture theater and distributed themselves among the little tables or stood in a group about the doorway. They were an exceptionally heterogeneous assembly, for while Oxford and Cambridge still recoil from the blushing prospect of mixed classes, the College of Science anticipated America in the matter years ago. Mixed socially, too, for the prestige of the college is high, and its scholarships, free of any age limit, dredge deeper than those of the Scotch universities. The class numbered one in twenty, but some remained in the theater questioning the professor, copying the blackboard diagrams before they were washed off, or examining the special specimens he had produced to illustrate the day's teaching. Of the nine who had come into the laboratory, three were girls, one of whom, a little fair woman, wearing spectacles and dressed in a grayish green, was peering out the window at the fog, 
while the other two, both wholesome-looking, plain-faced schoolgirls, unrolled and put on the brown holland aprons they wore while dissecting. Of the men, two went down the laboratory to their places, one a pallid, dark-bearded man who had once been a tailor, the other a pleasant-featured, ruddy young man of twenty dressed in a well-fitting brown suit, young Wedderburn, the son of Wedderburn the eye specialist. The others formed a little knot near the theater door. One of these, a dwarf-spectacled figure with a hunchback, sat on a bent wood stool. The two others, one a short, dark youngster, the other a flaxen-haired, reddish-complexioned young man, stood leaning side by side against the slate sink, while the fourth stood facing them and maintained the larger share of the conversation. This last person was named Hill. He was a sturdily built young fellow, of the same age as Wedderburn. He had a white face, dark gray eyes, hair of an indeterminate color, and prominent, irregular features. He talked rather louder than was needful, and thrust his hands deeply into his pockets. His collar was frayed and blue with the starch of a careless laundress, his clothes were evidently ready-made, and there was a patch on the side of his boot near the toe. As he talked or listened to the others, he glanced now and again towards the lecture theater door. They were discussing the depressing peroration of the lecture they had just heard, the last lecture it was in the introductory course in zoology. From ovum to ovum is the goal of the higher vertebrata, the lecturer had said in his melancholy tones, and so had neatly rounded off the sketch of comparative anatomy he had been developing. The spectacled hunchback had repeated it with noisy appreciation and tossed it towards the fair-haired student in an evident provocation, and had started one of those vague, rambling discussions on generalities so unaccountably dear to the student mind all the world over. That is our goal, I admit it, as far as science goes, said the fair-haired student, rising to the challenge. But there are things above science. Science, said Hill confidently, is systematic knowledge. Ideas that don't come into the system must, anyhow, be loose ideas. He was not quite sure whether that was a clever saying or a fatuity until his hearers took it seriously. The thing I cannot understand, said the hunchback at large, is whether Hill is a materialist or not. There is one thing above matter, said Hill promptly, feeling he had a better thing this time, aware, too, of someone in the doorway behind him and raising his voice a trifle for her benefit. And that is the delusion that there is something above matter. The girl in brown, with the brown eyes, had come into the laboratory and stood on the other side of the table behind him with a rolled-up apron in one hand, looking over her shoulder, listening to the discussion. She did not notice the hunchback, because she was glancing from Hill to his interlocutor. Hill's consciousness of her presence betrayed itself to her only in his studious ignorance of the fact. But she understood that, and it pleased her. "'I see no reason,' said he, "'why a man should live like a brute because he knows of nothing beyond matter, and does not expect to exist a hundred years hence.' Why shouldn't he, said the fair-haired student. Why should he, said Hill. What inducement has he? That's the way with all you religious people. It's all a business of inducements. Cannot a man seek after righteousness for righteousness's sake? The girl in brown with the brown eyes had come into the laboratory and stood on the other side of the table behind him, with her rolled-up apron in one hand, looking over her shoulder, listening to the discussion. She did not notice the hunchback because she was glancing from Hill to his interlocutor. Hill's consciousness of her presence betrayed itself to her only in his studious ignorance of the fact, 
but she understood that, and it pleased her. I see no reason, said he, why a man should live like a brute because he knows of nothing beyond matter, and does not expect to exist a hundred years hence. Why shouldn't he? asked the fair-haired student. Why should he? asked Hill. What inducement has he? That is the way with all you religious people. It's all a business of inducements. Cannot a man seek after righteousness for righteousness' sake? There was a pause. The fair-haired man answered with a kind of vocal padding. But, you see, inducement, when I said inducement, to gain time. And then the hunchback came to his rescue and inserted a question. He was a terrible person in the debating society with his questions, and they invariably took one form, a demand for a definition. What's your definition of righteousness, said the hunchback at this stage. Hill experienced a sudden loss of complacency at this question, but even as it was asked, relief came in the person of Brooks, the laboratory attendant, who entered by the preparation room door, carrying a number of freshly killed guinea pigs by their hind legs. This is the last batch of material this session, said the youngster, who had not previously spoken. Brick advanced up the laboratory, smacking down a couple of guinea pigs at each table. The rest of the class, scenting the prey from afar, came crowding in by the lecture theater door, and the discussion perished abruptly as the students who were not already in their places hurried to them to secure their choice of a specimen. There was a noise of keys rattling on split rings as lockers were opened and dissecting instruments were taken out. Hill was already standing by his table, and his box of scalpels was sticking out of his pocket. The girl in brown came a step towards him, and leaning over the table said softly, Did you see that I had returned your book, Mr. Hill? During the whole scene, she and the book had been vividly present in his consciousness, but he made a clumsy pretense of looking at the book and seeing it for the first time. Oh yes, he said, taking it up. I see. Did you like it? I wanted to ask you some questions about it. Sometime. Certainly, said Hill. I shall be glad. He stopped awkwardly. You liked it, he said. It's a wonderful book, only some things I don't understand. Suddenly the laboratory was hushed by a curious braying noise. It was the demonstrator, who was at the blackboard ready to begin the day's instruction, and it was his custom to demand silence by a sound midway between the er of common intercourse and the blast of a trumpet. The girl in brown slipped back to her place. It was immediately in front of Hill's, and Hill, forgetting her forthwith, took a notebook out of the drawer of his table, turned over its leaves hastily, drew a stumpy pencil from his pocket, and prepared to make a copious note of the coming demonstration. For demonstrations and lectures are the sacred texts of the college students. Books, saving only the professor's own, you may, it is even expedient to ignore. Hill was the son of a landport cobbler and had been hooked by a chance blue paper the authorities had thrown out to the Landport Technical College. He kept himself in London on his allowance of a guinea a week, and found that, with proper care, this also covered his clothing allowance, an occasional waterproof collar, that is, and ink and needles and cotton and such-like necessities for a man about town. This was his first year and his first session, but the brown old man in Landport had already got himself detested in many public houses by boasting of his son, the professor. Hill was a vigorous youngster, with a serene contempt for the clergy of all denominations and a fine ambition to reconstruct the world. He regarded the scholarship as a brilliant opportunity. 
He had begun to read at seven, and had read steadily whatever came his way, good or bad, since then. His worldly experience had been limited to the island of Portsea, and acquired chiefly in the wholesale boot factory, in which he had worked by day after passing the seventh standard of the board school. He had a considerable gift of speech as the college debating society, which met amidst the crushing machines and mind models in the metallurgical theater downstairs already recognized, recognized by a violent battering of desks whenever he rose. And he was just at that fine emotional age when life opens at the end of a narrow pass like a broad valley at one's feet, full of the promise of wonderful discoveries and tremendous achievements. And his own limitations, save that he knew that he knew neither Latin nor French, were all unknown to him. At first, his interests had been divided pretty equally between his biological work at the college and the social and theological theorizing, an appointment which he took in deadly earnest. Of a night when the big museum library was not open, he would sit on the bed of his room in Chelsea with his coat and a muffler on and write out the lecture notes and revise his dissection, memoranda, until Thrope called him out by a whistle. The landlady objected to open the door to attic visitors. And then the two would go prowling about the shadowy, shiny, gaslit streets, talking very much in the fashion of the sample just given, of the God idea and righteousness and Carlyle and the reorganization of society. And in the midst of it all, Hill, arguing not only for Thorpe, but for the casual passer-by would loose the thread of his argument, glancing at some pretty painted face that looked meaningly at him as he passed. Science and righteousness. But once or twice lately, there had been signs of a third interest was creeping into his life. He had found his attention wandering from the fate of the mesoblastic somites or the probable meaning of the blastophore, to the thought of a girl with brown eyes who sat at the table before him. She was a paying student. She descended inconceivable social altitudes to speak to him. At the thought of the education she must have had and the accomplishments she must possess, the soul of Hill became abject within him. She had spoken to him first over a difficulty about the alsphenoid of a rabbit's skull, and he had found that, in biology at least, he had no reason for self-abasement. And in that, after the manner of young people starting from any starting point, they got to generalities while Hill attacked her upon the question of socialism, some instinct told him to spare her a direct assault upon her religion. She was gathering resolution to undertake what she had told herself was his aesthetic education. She was a year or two older than he, though the thought had never occurred to him. The loan of news from nowhere was the beginning of a series of crossed loans. Upon some absurd first principle of his, Hill had never wasted time upon poetry and it seemed an appalling deficiency to her. One day, in the lunch hour, when she chanced upon him alone in the little museum where the skeletons were arranged, shamefully eating the bun that constituted his midday meal, she retreated and returned to lend him, with a slightly furtive air, a volume of Browning. He stood sideways towards her and took the book rather clumsily, because he was holding the bun in the other hand, and, in the retrospect, his voice lacked the cheerful clearness that he would have wished. That occurred after the examination in comparative anatomy, on the day before the college turned out its students and was carefully locked up by the officials for the Christmas holidays. The excitement of cramming for the first trial of strength had for a little while dominated Hill, 
to the exclusion of his other interests. In the forecast of the result which everyone indulged, he was surprised to find that no one regarded him as a possible competitor for the Harvey Commemoration Medal, of which this and two subsequent examinations disposed. It was about this time that Wedderburn, who so far lived inconspicuously on the uttermost margin of Hill's perceptions, began to take on the appearance of an obstacle. By a mutual agreement, the nocturnal prowlings with Thorpe ceased for three weeks before the examination, and his landlady pointed out that she really could not supply so much lamp oil at the price. He walked to and fro from the college with little slips of mnemonics in his hand, lists of crayfish appendages, rabbit skull bones, and vertebrae nerves, for example, and became a positive nuisance to foot passengers in the opposite direction. But, by a natural reaction, poetry and the girl with the brown eyes ruled the Christmas holiday. The pending results of the examination became such a secondary consideration that Hill marveled at his father's excitement. Even had he wished it, there was no comparative anatomy to read in Landport, and he was too poor to buy books. But the stock of poets in the library was extensive, and Hill's attack was magnificently sustained. He saturated himself with the fluent numbers of Longfellow and Tennyson, and fortified himself with Shakespeare, found a kindred soul in Pope and a master in Shelley, and heard and fled the siren voices of Eliza Cook and Mrs. Hemans. But he read no more Browning, because he hoped for the loan of other volumes from Miss Heyman when he returned to London. He walked from his lodgings to the college with that volume of Browning in his shiny black bag, and his mind teeming with the finest general propositions about poetry. Indeed, he framed first this little speech, and then that with which to grace the return. The morning was an exceptionally pleasant one for London. There was a clear, hard frost and an undeniable blue in the sky. A thin haze softened every outline, and warm shafts of sunlight struck between the house blocks and turned the sunny side of the street to amber and gold. In the hall of the college, he pulled off his glove and signed his name with fingers so stiff with cold that the characteristic dash on the under the signature he cultivated, became a quivering line. He imagined Miss Hazeman about him everywhere. He turned at the staircase, and there below he saw a crowd struggling at the foot of the notice board. This, possibly, was the biology list. He forgot Browning and Miss Hazeman for the moment and joined the scrimmage. And at last, with his cheek flattened against the sleeve of the man with, on the step above him, he read the list. Class 1 H. J. Summers Wedderburn, William Hill, and thereafter followed a second class that is outside our present sympathies. It was characteristic that he did not trouble to look for Thorpe on the physics list, but backed out of the struggle at once, and in a curious emotional state between pride over common second-class humanity and acute disappointment at Wedderburn's success, went on his way upstairs. At the top, as he was hanging up his coat in the passage, the zoological demonstrator, a young man from Oxford, who secretly regarded him as a blatant mugger of the very worst type, offered his heartiest congratulations. At the laboratory door, Hill stopped for a second to get his breath, and then entered. He looked straight up the laboratory and saw all five girl students grouped in their places, and Wedderburn, the once retiring Wedderburn, leaning rather gracefully against the window, playing with the blind tassel and talking, apparently, to the five of them. Now, Hill could talk bravely enough and even overbearingly to one girl. He could have made a speech to a roomful of girls. But this business, 
of standing at ease and appreciating fencing and returning quick remarks around a group was, he knew, altogether beyond him. Coming up the staircase, his feelings for Wedderburn had been generous. A certain admiration, perhaps, a willingness to shake his hand conspicuously and heartily as one who had fought but the first round. But before Christmas, Wedderburn had never gone up to that end of the room to talk. In a flash, Hill's mist of vague excitement condense abruptly into a vivid dislike of Wedderburn. Possibly his expression changed. As he came up to his place, Wedderburn nodded carelessly to him, and the others glanced around. Miss Hazeman looked at him in a way again, the faintest touch of her eyes. I can't agree with you, Mr. Wedderburn, she said. I must congratulate you on your first class, Mr. Hill, said the spectacled girl in green, turning around and beaming at him. It's nothing, said Hill, staring at Wedderburn and Miss Hazeman talking together, and eager to hear what they talked about. We poor folks in the second class don't think so, said the girl in spectacles. What was it that Wedderburn was saying? Something about William Morris? Hill did not answer the girl in spectacles, and the smile died out of his face. He could not hear and failed to see how he could cut in. Confound Wedderburn! He sat down, opened his bag, hesitated whether to return the volume of Browning forthwith in the sight of all, and instead drew out his new notebooks for the short course in elementary botany that was now beginning, and which would terminate in February. As he did so, a fat heavy man with a white face and a pale gray eyes, Vinden, the professor of botany, who came up from Q for January and February, came in by the lecture theater door and passed, rubbing his hands together and smiling, in silent affability down the laboratory. In the subsequent six weeks, Hill experienced some very rapid and curiously complex emotional developments. For the most part, he had Wedderburn in focus, a fact Miss Hazeman never suspected. She told Hill, for in the comparative privacy of the museum she talked a good deal to him of socialism and browning and general propositions, that she had met Wedderburn in the house of some people she knew, and... He's inherited his cleverness from his father, you know, the great eye specialist. My father is a cobbler, said Hill quite irreverently, and perceived the want of dignity even as he said it. But the gleam of jealousy did not offend her. She conceived herself the fundamental source of it. He suffered bitterly from a sense of Wedderburn's unfairness and a realization of his own handicap. Here was this Wedderburn had picked up a prominent man for a father, and instead of his losing so many marks on that score of that advantage, it was counted to him for righteousness. And while Hill had to introduce and talk to Miss Hazeman clumsily over mangled guinea pigs in the laboratory, this Wedderburn, in some backstairs way, had access to her social altitudes and could converse in a polished argo that Hill understood perhaps, but felt incapable of speaking. Not, of course, that he wanted to. Then it seemed to Hill for Wedderburn to come here day after day with cuffs unfrayed, neatly tailored, precisely barbered, quietly perfect, was in itself an ill-bred, sneering sort of proceeding. Moreover, it was a stealthy thing for Wedderburn to behave insignificantly for a space, to mock modestly, to lead Hill to fancy that he himself was beyond dispute for the man of the year, and then suddenly dart in front of him an in continently to swell up in this fashion. In addition to these things, Wedderburn displayed an increasing disposition to join in any conversational grouping that included Miss Hazeman, and would venture and indeed seek occasion 
to pass opinions derogatory to socialism and atheism. He goaded Hill into incivilities by neat, shallow, and exceedingly effective personalities about the socialist leaders, until Hill hated Bernard Shaw's graceful egotisms. William Morris's limited editions and the luxurious wallpapers and Walter Crane's charmingly absurd ideal working man about as much as he hated Wedderburn. The dissertations in the laboratory that had been his glory in the previous term became a danger, degenerated into inglorious tussles with Wedderburn, and Hill kept to them only out of an obscure perception that his honor was involved. In the debating society, Hill knew quite clearly that, to a thunderous accompaniment of banged desks, he could have pulverized Wedderburn. Only Wedderburn never attended the debating society to be pulverized, because, nauseous affectation, he dined late. You must not imagine that these things presented themselves in quite such a crude form to Hill's perception. Hill was a born generalizer. Wedderburn to him was not so much an individual obstacle as a type. The salient angle of a class. The economic theories that, after infinite ferment, had shaped themselves in Hill's mind, became abruptly concrete at the contact. The world became full of easy-mannered, graceful, gracefully dressed, conversationally dexterous, finally shadow Wedderburns, Bishop's Wedderburn, Wedderburn MPs, Professor's Wedderburn, Wedderburn landlords, all with finger-bowl shibboleths and epigrammatic cities of refuge from a sturdy debater. And everyone ill-clothed or ill-dressed, from the cobbler to the cab-runner, was a man and a brother, a fellow-sufferer to Hill's imagination. So that he became, as it were, a champion of the fallen and oppressed, albeit to outward seeming only a self-assertive, ill-mannered young man, and an unsuccessful champion at that. Again and again a skirmish over the afternoon tea that the girl students had inaugurated left Hill with flushed cheeks and a tattered temper, and the debating side noticed a new quality of sarcastic bitterness in his speeches. You will understand now how it was necessary, if only in the interests of humanity, that Will should demolish Wedderburn in the forthcoming examination, and outshine him in the eyes of Miss Hazeman. And you will perceive, too, how Miss Hazeman fell into some common feminine misconceptions. The Hill-Wedderburn quarrel, for in his unostentatious way Wedderburn reciprocated Hill's ill-veiled rivalry, became a tribute to her indefinable charm. She was the queen of beauty in a tournament of scalpels and stumpy pencils. To her confidential friend's secret annoyance, it even troubled her conscience, for she was a good girl and painfully aware, from Ruskin and contemporary fiction, how entirely men's activities are determined by women's attributes. And if Hill never by any chance mentioned the topic of love to her, she only credited him with the finer modesty for that omission. So the time came on for the second examination, and Hill's increasing pallor confirmed the general rumor that he was working hard. In the aerated bread shop near South Kennington Station, you would see him, breaking his bun and sipping his milk, with his eyes intent upon a paper of closely written notes. In his bedroom, there were propositions about buds and stems round his looking-glass, a diagram to catch his eye, if Shope should chance to spare it, above his washing-basin. He missed several meetings of the debating society, but he found the chance encounters with Miss Hazeman in the spacious ways of the adjacent art museum, or in the little museum at the top of the college, or in the college corridors, more frequent and very restful. In particular, 
they used to meet in a little gallery full of wrought-iron chests and gates near the art library and there hill used to talk under the gentle stimulus of her flattering attention of browning and his personal ambitions a characteristic she found remarkable in him was his freedom from avarice he contemplated quite calmly the prospect of living all his life on an income below a hundred pounds a year but he was determined to be famous to make recognizably in his own proper person the world a better place to live in he took bradlaugh and john burns for his leaders and models poor even impecunious great men but miss hazeman thought that such lives were deficient on the aesthetic side by which though she did not know it she meant good wallpaper and upholstery pretty books tasteful clothes concerts and meals nicely cooked and respectfully served at last came the day of the second examination and the professor of botany a fussy conscientious man rearranged all the tables in a long narrow laboratory to prevent copying and put his demonstrator on a chair on a table where he felt he said like a hindu god to see all cheating and stuck a notice outside the door door closed for no earthly reason that any human being could discover and all the morning from ten till one the quill of wedderburn shrieked defiance at hills and the quills of the others chased their leaders in a tireless pack and so also it was in the afternoon Waterburn was a little quieter than usual, and Hill's face was hot all day, and his overcoat bulged with textbooks and notebooks against the last moment's revision. In the next day, in the morning and in the afternoon, was the practical examination, when sections had to be cut and slides identified. In the morning, Hill was depressed because he knew he had to cut a thick section, and in the afternoon came the mysterious slip. It was just the kind of thing that the botanical professor was always doing, like the income tax it offered a premium to the cheat it was a preparation under the microscope a little glass slip held in its place on the stage of the instrument by light steel clips and the inscription set forth that the slip was not to be moved each student was to go in turn to it sketch it write in his book of answers what he considered it to be and return to his place now to move such a slip is a thing one can do by a chance movement of the finger and in a fraction of a second the professor's reason for decreeing that the slip should not be moved depended on the fact that the object he wanted identified was characteristic of a certain tree stem in the position in which it was placed it was a difficult thing to recognize but once the slip was moved so as to bring the other parts of the preparation into view its nature was obvious enough hill came to this flushed from a contest with staining reagents sat down on the little stool before the microscope turned the mirror to get the best light, and then, out of sheer habit, shifted the slip. At once he remembered the prohibition, and, with an almost continuous motion of his hands, moved it back, and sat paralyzed with astonishment at his action. Then, slowly, he turned his head. The professor was out of the room. The demonstrator sat aloft in his impromptu rostrum, reading the quarterly journal of microscopical science. The rest of the examinees were busy, and with their backs to him. Should he own up to the accident now? He knew quite clearly what the thing was. It was a lenticel, a characteristic preparation from the elder tree. His eyes roved over to his intent fellow students, and Wedderburn suddenly glanced over his shoulder at him with a queer expression in his eyes. The mental excitement that had kept Hill at an abnormal pitch of vigor these two days gave way to a curious nervous tension. His book of answers was beside him. He did not write down what the thing was. 
but with one eye at the microscope, he began making a hasty sketch of it. His mind was full of this grotesque puzzle in ethics that had suddenly been sprung upon him. Should he identify it? Or should he leave this question unanswered? In that case, Wedderburn would probably come out first in the second result. How could he tell now whether he might not have identified the thing without shifting it? It was possible that Wedderburn had felt to recognize it, of course. Suppose Wedderburn, too, had shifted the slide? He looked up at the clock. There were fifteen minutes in which to make up his mind. He gathered up his book of answers and the colored pencils he used in illustrating his replies and walked back to his seat. He read through his manuscript and then sat thinking and gnawing at his knuckle. It would look queer now if he opened up. He must beat Wedderburn. He forgot the examples of those starry gentlemen John Burns and Bradlow. Besides, he reflected, the glimpse of the rest of the slip that he had had was, after all, quite accidental, forced upon him by chance, a kind of providential revelation rather than an unfair advantage. It was not nearly so dishonest to avail himself of that as it was a broom, who believed in the efficacy of prayer to pray daily for a first class. Five minutes more, said the demonstrator, folding up his paper and becoming observant. Hill watched the clock hands until two minutes remained. Then he opened the book of answers, with hot ears and an affectation of ease, gave his drawing of the lenticel its name. When the second pass list appeared, the previous positions of Wedderburn and Hill were reversed. In the spectacled girl in green, who knew the demonstrator in private life where he was practically human, said that in the result of the two examinations taken together, Hill had the advantage of a mark. 167 to 166 out of a possible 200. Everybody admired Hill in a way, though the suspicion of mugging clung to him. But Hill was to find congratulations and Miss Hazeman enhanced opinion of him, and even the decided decline in the crest of Wedderburn, tainted by an unhappy memory. He felt a remarkable access of energy at first, and the note of a democracy marching to triumph returned in his debating society speeches. He worked at his cooperative anatomy with tremendous zeal and effect, and he went on with his aesthetic education. But through it all, a vivid little picture was continually coming before his mind's eye of a sneakish person manipulating a slide. No human being had witnessed the act, and he was cocksure that no higher power existed to see it. But for all that, it worried him. Memories are not dead things, but alive. They dwindle in disuse, but they harden and develop in all sorts of queer ways if they are being continually fretted. Curiously enough, though at the time he perceived clearly that the shifting was accidental, as the days wore on, his memory became confused about it, until at last he was not sure, although he assured himself that he was sure, whether the movement had been absolutely involuntary. Then it is possible that Hill's dietary was conductive to morbid conscientiousness. A breakfast frequently eaten in a hurry, a midday bun, and, at such hours after five as chanced to be convenient, such meat as his means determined, usually in a chop house in a back street off of the Brompton Road. Occasionally, he treated himself to threepenny or ninepenny classics, and they usually represented a suppression of potatoes or chops. It is indisputable that outbreaks of self-abasement and emotional revival have a distinct relation to periods of scarcity. But apart from this influence on the feelings, there was in Hill a distinct aversion to falsity that the blasphemous Landport cobbler had inculcated by strap and tongue from his earliest years. Of one fact about professed atheists, I am convinced. 
They may be, they usually are, fools, void of subtlety, revelers of holy institutions, brutal speakers, and mischievous knaves, but they lie with difficulty. If it were not so, if they had the faintest grasp of the idea of compromise, they would simply be liberal churchmen, and, moreover, this memory poisoned his regard for Miss Hazeman, for she now so evidently preferred him to Wedderburn that he felt sure he cared for her, and began reciprocating her attentions by timid marks of personal regard. At one time he even bought a bunch of violets, carried it about in his pocket, and produced it with a stumbling explanation, withered and dead, in the gallery of old iron. It poisoned, too, the denunciation of capitalist dishonesty that had been one of his life's pleasures, and lastly, it poisoned his triumph in Wedderburn. Previously, he had been Wedderburn's superior in his own eyes, and had raged simply at a want of recognition. Now he began to fret at the darker suspicion of positive inferiority. He fancied he found justifications for his position in Browning, but they vanished on analysis. At last, moved, curiously enough, by exactly the same motive forces that have resulted in his dishonesty, he went to Professor Binden, and made a clean breast of the whole affair. As Hill was a paid student, Professor Binden did not ask him to sit down, and he stood before the professor's desk as he made his confession. "'It is a curious story,' said Professor Binden, slowly realizing how the thing reflected on himself, and then letting his anger rise. "'A most remarkable story. I can't understand your doing it, and I can't understand this avowal. You're the type of student Cambridge men would never dream. I suppose I ought to have thought, why did you cheat? I did not cheat, said Hill, but you have just been telling me you did. I thought I had explained you either cheated or you did not cheat. I said my motion was involuntary. I am not a metaphysician. I am a servant of science, of fact. You were told not to move the slip. You did move the slip. If that's not cheating... If I was a cheat, said Hill, with a note of hysterics in his voice, should I come here and tell you? Your repentance, of course, does you credit, said Professor Binden, but it does not alter the original facts. No, sir, said Hill, giving in to utter self-abasement. Even now you cause an enormous amount of trouble. The examination list will have to be revised. I suppose so, sir. Suppose so. Of course it must be revised. And I don't see how I can conscientiously pass you. Not pass me, said Hill. Fail me? It's the rule in all examinations. Oh, where should we be? What else did you expect? You don't want to shirk the consequences of your own acts. I thought perhaps, said Hill. And then, fail me? I thought, as I told you, you would simply deduct the marks given for that slip. Impossible, said Bindon. Besides, it would still leave you above Wedderburn. Deduct only the marks. Preposterous. The departmental regulations distinctly say. But it's my own admission, sir. The regulations say nothing, whatever, of the matter in which the matter comes to light. They simply provide. It will ruin me. If I fail this examination, they won't renew my scholarship. You should have thought of that before. But, sir, consider all my circumstances. I cannot consider anything. Professors in this college are machines. The regulations will not even let us recommend our students for appointments. I am a machine, and you have worked me. And I have to do... 
It's very hard, sir. Possibly it is. If I am to be failed this examination, I might as well go home at once. That is, as you think proper. Bidden's voice softened a little. He perceived that he had been unjust, and, provided he did not contradict himself, he was disposed to amelioration. As a private person, he said, I think this confession of yours does far to mitigate your offense. But you have set the machinery in motion, and now it must take its course. I... I am really sorry you gave way. A wave of emotion prevented Hill from answering. Suddenly, very vividly, he saw the heavily lined face of the old Landport cobbler, his father. Good God! What a fool I have been! He said hotly and abruptly. I hope, said Benden, that it will be a lesson to you. But, curiously enough, they were not thinking of quite the same indiscretion. There was a pause. I would like today to think, sir, and then I will let you know. About going home, I mean, said Hill, moving towards the door. The next day, Hill's place was vacant. The spectacled girl in green was, as usual, first with the news. Wedderburn and Miss Hazeman were talking of a performance of the Meistersingers when she came up to them. "'Have you heard?' she said. "'Heard what?' "'There was cheating in the examination.' "'Cheating!' said Wedderburn, his face suddenly hot. "'How?' "'That slide. Moved? Never. It was. The slide that we weren't to move. "'Nonsense!' said Wedderburn. "'Why? How could they find out? Who do they say?' "'It was Mr. Hill. Hill. Mr. Hill!' "'Surely not the Immaculate Hill,' said Wedderburn, recovering. "'I don't believe it,' said Miss Hazeman. "'How do you know?' "'I didn't,' said the girl in spectacles. "'But I know it now for a fact. "'Mr. Hill went and confessed to Professor Binden himself.' "'By Jove,' said Wedderburn. "'Hill of all people. "'But I am always inclined to distrust these philanthropists on principle.' "'Are you quite sure?' said Miss Hazeman, with a catch in her breath. Quite. It's dreadful, isn't it? But, you know, what can you expect? His father is a cobbler. Then Miss Hazeman astonished the girl in spectacles. I don't care. I will not believe it, she said, flushing darkly under her warm-tinted skin. I will not believe it until he has told me himself, face to face. And I would scarcely believe it then. And abruptly she turned her back to the girl in spectacles and walked to her own place. "'It's true, all the same,' said the girl in spectacles, peering and smiling at Wedderburn. But Wedderburn did not answer her. She was indeed one of those people who seemed destined to make unanswered remarks. End of Section 17 Read by The Second End of The Platner Story and Others by H. G. Wells